Welcome to Talking New Energy, a podcast from Delta EE, the new energy experts. We'll be talking about how the energy transition is developing across Europe, with guests who are working at the leading edge of this transition. Hello and welcome to the episode. Today we're going to roll up our sleeves and get down into some of the nitty gritty issues in the heating sector. The energy transition is widely talked about. Some of the industry talk about the heating transition or the the decarbonizing heat. And there are lots of elements of that. But one element that's often overlooked is the role of the installer. And that, in some ways, is one of the most important elements. So today I'm joined by Nathan Gambling, who very much lives and works and breathes the world of installers, heating installers in the UK. Nathan, hello. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you for inviting me. You're very welcome. Nathan, give our, our listeners a, a quick intro of what you do, a flavour of your, your day-to-day work. Oh, that's right. So basically, the, the simple sentence to say is I, I facilitate learning. I help people understand the heating industry. So that's a, that's a wide spectrum of cohorts, whether it's the engineers, consumers, uh, consultancies like you guys. Um, so I help people understand a little bit about the heating industry because obviously, as you would know, everyone seems to be talking about it now. They never used to talk about this industry, but it's a big, big topic and a massive discourse now of all sorts of people talking about it. So I run a podcast, so I decided that I wanted to amplify and disseminate the voice of good engineers because there is some very good engineers out there that are on-the-ground engineers, and their voices needed to be heard because they're the ones dealing with this technology day in, day out. Um, I come from a heating background, so my grandfather brought oil pressure jet burner technology to this country, UK, 60s, 70s, from Sweden. So he was one of the leading oil combustion experts in Europe. My great uncle was the lead engineer and European energy manager for Unilever. And anyone that knows Unilever, probably the world's first corporation. They bought Birdseye in 1930. So they were they've been around vapor compression technology, which is heat pumps, refrigeration, uh, for a long, long time. Had some of the biggest plant on the planet. And my cousin, he's the leading UK expert on acoustic sensitive vapor compression technology. So things like BBC Studios, radio studios. I mean, when you get these guests going to these radio stations and say heat pumps don't work, they don't realise they're being comfort cooled and comfort heated with VRF technology, which is vapor compression. It's a heat pump. Um, so they're everywhere. So yeah, so I, was, I sort of grew up my, my apprenticeship was with the MOD. Um, been plumbing heating all my life. Probably at some point wanted to get out of it and do other things, but I started lecturing in 2006. I was asked to teach in a prison that was the first prison to teach plumbing and heating, and I've got a degree in behavioural sort of psychology, so I did that. Liked teaching. Um, teaching is hard. In co- then got into teaching in colleges. That's quite hard because. Uh, education is a business there's I don't think it's fit for purpose a lot of the time so I thought well I still want to facilitate learning let's use these disruptive technology that now exists like you and I now use podcasts for instance where I can help people one of the two of the two of my main missions are to activate people as learning resources for each other because peer learning peer-to-peer learning is, is, is fantastic and help people activate them uh, as taking ownership of their own learning everyone thinks it's all about courses but anyone can go on a course and anyone can generally pass a course in this industry it's about getting in and inspiring people to become conscientious learners and, and, and really sort of take take sort of learning uh, and, and grasp it and, and, and really get to know what their uh, what their industry is all about. Nathan, you use the word um, heating engineers. I use the word installers. Mm. Um, is installers mm. a wrong word? Is engineers a right word? Does it matter or is it important? 
This is a very good question. It comes up a lot of the time. So I, the, the word installer is, is relatively new. So if you look at the, um, if you go back to the days of Corgi, who had the, the register, so they had a magazine that they called installer. Pre that, I don't think people used that word. There was technician, operatives, et cetera, et cetera, engineers. So my grand, if you look at my granddad, like say one of the preeminent oil combustion um, engineers in Europe, um, he had his engineering degrees from the Navy. My dad hasn't got any qualifications, but has been fixing oil boilers all his, you know, for a long, long time. There is no way my great uncle and my granddad would not call my dad an engineer. He was a heating engineer. So he found... Right. He found that whole world a little bit elitist where you had to have degrees before you could call yourself an engineer. Because like he said, people on the ground, whether they're in big ships or whatever they're doing, they're the ones that usually get the thing problems, problems solved. So, yeah, there is this thing about what should they be called engineers. If you look at a very good engineer that I have on my podcast, yes, I would always call them engineers. They're not just installers. But, but there is this thing about what I think people don't realise. There's lots of niches within plumbing and heating world. So like you can get a, you can get a guy or girl that are very good at fixing boilers. That's a good skill in its own right. Very good at fault finding and fixing. Then you get people that are very good at installing them. So, you know, they, they know a little bit about yeah. design. They know how to do heat loss calculations or even heat loss measurement now, which I think everyone should do, heat, uh, heat and transfer coefficients. Uh, so they know how to design systems and put them in. Probably wouldn't know as much as the people sort of fixing them. Uh, you get good commissioning engineers that can set things up properly. So there is some, some variety within the whole installation or what people would call the installation world. I can't tend to call it the engineering world. But, you know, when you've got good engineers, yeah. the ones I have on my podcast, what they can do is phenomenal. So, yeah, in my mind, they're, they're, they're not just installers. So installers probably downplays the skills of a big part of uh of heating engineers some will be more have more skills some will be uh as you say very adept at fixing things at carrying out heat loss calculations others may be very good at swapping out an old boiler for a new boiler but there's quite a diverse range of skills within the industry oh w- without a doubt and i mean if you if you take my dad for instance you know my dad could repair any old boiler going and which is a great skill but if you asked him what is a what he wouldn't know it was a dual per second. If you said, look, Dad, I've got a home here that needs eight kilowatts when it's minus three, he wouldn't know it. that meant it needs seven when it's uh, zero and only 3.6 kilowatts when it's 10 degrees outside. He wouldn't know that. Um, so there's a lot of yeah. variation, um, which is which is some, which is quite important to consider when we do sort of consider that skill set that's out there. And, and, one, and what we'll probably talk about in, in a bit is I feel a little bit sorry for the engineers because they've, they've been in a – an industry or installers, whatever you want to call them, that's that was successful. So the UK had the biggest gas boiler industry in the world up until 2016. It's a very overcrowded market still. Um, so there's a lot of marketing tactics, PR tactics that go on. And we've kind of lost our way a little bit. You know, the engineers out there haven't been taught um, good practices about design. You know, they've been taught how to safely install boilers, basically. So there's a lack of knowledge yeah. out there. Um, which is a shame. But, you know, there's definitely an impetus of people wanting to learn, and, and that's across the age range. It's not whether they're coming up to retirement so, or not. It's across the age range. So the biggest, if we try and break down this group of engineers, stroke installers today, Nathan, in a country like the UK, the UK is predominantly a gas boiler market, um, Europe's biggest gas boiler market. Most engineers installers let's use both words are very good at coming into a home and installing and swapping out a gas boiler 
one gets spoiler for another one. Is that yeah. the biggest group? If you had to try and break down the different types of installer engineers, is that the biggest group? The people that will come in, be very good at sizing the boiler, approximately swapping a boiler out and moving on to the next job. Is that, could, yeah, you, could yeah. you characterize sort of the, the typical day job of the most common installer? Yeah, yeah, that is the biggest cohort now. So, unfortunately, rightly or wrongly, um, uh, you've got boiler manufacturers. Obviously, like that, they're competing with each other for their sales figures, and they've incentivized, rightly or wrongly, or whether they wittingly or unknowingly, uh, they've incentivized replacing boilers rather than repair. So, there are companies, boiler companies, some of the big boiler companies in this country will fly you to Vegas, Miami. You should put so many boilers on the wall. So they've incented, you know, an all-paid-for expenses holiday. So they've incentivized with their loyalty schemes putting boilers on the wall. And with a gas combi boiler, that's quite easy. You can go in there. Some will do it in half a day, three-quarters of a day. You can do it quite quickly. So there's been a race to the bottom with prices. Now, that doesn't mean the person doing that can't do a good job. It's just that depending where they live geographically, you know, if they really, really want to do a good job and size the system properly, clean the system properly, commission it properly, put weather comp controls on it, they're competing with people that just want to go in and plonk a boiler on the wall. So right. depending on who their customer base is, you know, the, this is one of the reasons why the prices are, have been driven so low. I mean, people people moan about us being too expensive, but, you know, there's people out there paying more for their subscriptions on Netflix and Spotify on their phones than they do for a boiler every 10 years. Yeah. Uh, but yes, they are, yep. to answer your question, they are the biggest cohort, I think. Yeah, without a doubt. What's the difference in time from the, the two examples he gave there? Someone that just goes out and swaps the boiler out, someone that goes in, cleans the system, does a heat loss calculation, weather compensation. Is that an extra hour, two hours of effort? Is it an extra day of effort? Oh, you can say, from it's, the, day. You can say you, it's an extra day. If you, let's say... Uh, a really, really good engineer wanted to go and assess a four-bedroom a four bedroom property. Uh, it's winter, you know, and, and maybe most people buy things on distress purchase, but let's say they haven't. Let's say, yep. oh, I want a new heating system. So, you know, a good engineer might go in, they might do some thermography on the radiators. So they'll use their thermal imaging camera and they'll take images of the radiators. You'll be able to pick up the sludge patterns. So that's something they can give to the customer. So the customer can now see, oh, yeah, I can understand that. So they then do a proper good flush you know, there's a there's a fantastic uh, thorough flush piece of equipment that will send water backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. It's actually quite hard to get this sludge out of a radiator. Uh, velocity drops mm. when when water flows through a radiator, so the sediment falls into the radiator. All these the most <laughs> the most hyped up product on our heating industry at the moment is a magnetic filter. Sludge doesn't automatically think, oh, there's a magnetic filter at the end of the system. Let's go and make our way to it. Sludge drops to the bottom. That's velocity drop. That's why we used to have dirt separators. You know, it drops to the bottom. So you want to clean that system out, get that clean. Then you can do a therm, thermal image, uh, imaging again. So the customer now can see, oh, yeah, our rads are now clean. Great. So we can now then sort of start to uh, think about putting the board on all and the controls and what sort of controls you use. We've got a big problem with the wrong controls being used. So, I mean, someone like British Gas, for instance, they've got Hive. You know, Hive is just an on-off thermostat. It might be able to be a – it's an internet-connected device, but it's just an on-off thermostat. It can't modulate your boiler. And you want boilers yep. or heat pumps to modulate depending on the temperature outside. Uh, you know, if it's colder outside, you need a higher temperature flow into yep. your reds. Uh, so, yeah, it's going to take a little bit more time, definitely a day. And obviously most customers uh, across the range, whether they're affluent or not, they, they kind of have this knowledge now that of a certain price, ballpark price, to have a boiler installation. So they don't tend to want to uh, 
to pay a little bit more to that engineer that wants to do, good, do a good job, for instance. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, that leads to a prob- different area we probably won't get into now, but about how inst- how engineers can demonstrate the value to customers to show yeah. the difference between going for a cheap quote that's a few hours work or a more expensive quote that might be a day's work and the value of that. Um, so there's a step from simple gas boiler swap to more uh, a better approach, which takes more time, flushing, controls, all the things you just talked about. There's another step up now to say the customer says, oh, I'm interested in a heat pump. Yeah. And what would be involved in that? So is there a step up in that? We, you know, If we've gone from hours of work to a day of work to then look at putting a heat pump in, is that an extra set of things that the engineer would need to do? Or is that basically taking the good practice around boilers and applying that to, to a heat pump? Yeah, I mean, ironically, I mean, we homes should already be heat pump ready. So condensing boilers were mandated back in 2005. Now, I know these these boilers, when, when, when a domestic energy assessor goes to a home and they tick off a box to say, yeah, you've got an A-plus boiler, great, you know, gives you a good EPC. They're coming out of the box set at 75 degrees still from the manufacturer. And not, most people aren't range rating them or, like say, weather compensating. So we, a condensing boiler, when it was mandated in 2005, is a low-temperature heating appliance. It was designed for so low-temperature yeah For people that don't understand flow temperatures, that's 73 degrees. That will be the temperature that a boiler will typically push water at around the... Yeah. Around the radiators. Yeah, yeah, and we do yep. not. And, and 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 like people say, we've got these leaky homes. We we don't need that high temp water. Historically, we used to have to have high temperature water for our thermosiphon systems, which were gravity systems. They didn't have pumps. We also then back in the days of TB, you'd have your hospitals with all the windows open in the winter. You had to have hot radiators. You know, there was a variety, and, and of course, before condensing boilers, uh, low temps would actually destroy your water jackets and heat exchangers because of condensate. But now that we've got uh, condensing boilers, we can have these very low temps. And one problem is we think we have fixed temperatures. We're not supposed to have fixed temperatures going around around the RADs. They're supposed to constantly change depending on what the weather is outside. Second law of thermodynamics dictates, you know, if there's a greater temperature difference between our 21 degrees or 20 degrees inside and the outside, heat's going to move quicker through the fabric. So we can adjust. Our our flow temps to the RADs are constantly adjusting, or they're supposed to be. So we don't need these high flow temps. Now, when condensing boilers were mandated in 2005, we, in reality, we should have been designed a system to be low temp. That might have meant you up, upsized a few of the rads, etc. So we're now yeah. at this we're now in this bizarre position where we're getting heat pump ready, and, and and a lot of our housing stock could have already been heat pump ready. But the transition, you know, the, we we know A is what we got. We know B is, is having more solar thermal and heat pumps, and there's going to be transitional steps. So I think the good engineers are going to be the ones that can sort of convince customers and obviously on the adoption curve we've got the innovators that are the ones mainly t- adopting this technology you know they're gonna um understand you know there might be some incremental steps you know get your rads upsized etc etc get some better control yep. systems in place for when you when you get your heat pump in the future um now the good engineers so, so you said to come back to your question that, that with time when people say you yeah, know why do heat pumps cost a lot of money the actual heat pump doesn't cost a lot of money i mean a six kilowatt heat pump you can get for for eighteen hundred quid or a premium brand for about three thousand five hundred. If you go on air to air, about five hundred quid. It's the time of, of 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 designing it, 
putting it in. I mean, it's, you know, I, I used to be able to lump a ball on my shoulder. I can't put a heat pump on my shoulder. So you need to employ uh, mm. labour to do that, get it off the lorry. Uh, you've got to design it. I mean, I've got engineers that have, that have got really, really keen customers that have emailed them over 100 times in the last month. So you've got this whole thing, because these early adopters of the technology, they want to know all the answers. So that's a lot of time for, it, for an, in, an engineer to be able to answer all these emails, um, do all the and design. You don't get that. You don't. No, you don't get that with, design time with the gas boiler. People don't say, "Oh, show me the three options." Yeah, oh, someone rings you up, yeah. says, "My boiler broke down." Yeah, okay, we'll come around with a new one, plonk it on the wall. Job done. But now you've yeah. got this whole procurement, you know, because it's not just the uh, you haven't just got to get the heat pump. You've got to procure all the other equipment you might need. So that that might be a, a special cylinder um, or plate heat exchangers, whatever people are, are choosing to use. So there's a, definitely a lot more time, and of course. The customer doesn't see that time away from site. You know, they just see someone turn up putting it. But the engineer, the engineer has to price that time into the quote. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I yeah. I, I would argue, and don't get me wrong, the poor old customer is they they're in an awkward position because, as you may have heard me say on my podcast, you know, customers do not know who's competent. You know, we 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 train people to be qualified in this country, not competent. There's a big difference. So I'm not bothered whether people have got qualifications or accreditations doesn't mean they're competent um so the customer doesn't really know who's competent and, and who to pay good money for because arguably it's the most complex system in our home we should be prepared to pay a little bit more money for for it to, for a good system than what we do um plumbers are kind of considered as tradespeople still you know at the, the world yeah. health organization rates us as the most important health worker on the planet even before doctors because we pre- pre- prevent more death and disease you know sanitation has always prevented more death and disease and doctors can cure and of course now really good heating engineers um mm. you know that's so important they're really so important so yeah i mean i always have customers argue why am i more than their carpet fitter <laughs> you know well i have to know a lot more than you bless them you know that's a good job i can't do it but i do have to know a little bit more that's why i think this difference between installer and engineer is quite important because it's a yeah. perception from customers as to firstly the value of their heating system and secondly, uh, the value of the person who's advising them, specifying it, designing it. Um, so if coming back to this installer swaps out a gas boiler, that's a few hours. A engineer uh, does uh, looks at radiators in the way described with a thermal, thermal imaging camera, flushes the system, puts in weather compensation, proper controls. That's a day um, for a heat pump installation what would you estimate all of that design time are we talking about a day or two days or five days or is oh. can you give us a feel for, for that well there's a i was interviewed by michael lee bright on, on his excellent podcast cleanup and us engineers say there is no there's no um we call it there's no panacotta there is no panacea every Every home is completely different. So even if they're exactly the same home, they can be completely different and they can have different occupancy. So I could go into one home, I could go into a living room and it might be a couple that have got their little armchairs, a tiny little TV. And I look at that room, I think, wow, I can get, I've got extra wall space. I can get two rads on this really, really well. And and, and an upsize of the rads or the surface area so I can emit these low temperatures. I might go into exactly the same house 10 years later and it's got a, another uh, family living it they got these wall-to-wall sofas you know the ones that go around an l they've got a massive massive mm. tv screen i'm now limited with the rad space and 
So even though it was the same property, the same living room, depending on how people live and interact with their homes, can change the whole system design. So you, it's very hard to put these times and prices on it. And I know everyone, I mean, I get contacted all the time, but, yeah, what's the average price? And, whatever, and it really is yeah, dependent yeah. on that first thing. It's a big range. Yeah, it's a massive big, range. Yeah. And, and you can never tell anything until you survey it. So it's why you know, a lot of us good engineers, we're not happy about some of the um, models like Boxed that are just basically you know, the customer chooses a boiler online and it gets shipped out because that's just took all the design away from a heating system. Um, yeah. So yeah, the, you can't really say to, 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 for you can't really put a, a time or price on. You have to survey it right from the word go and, uh, and to, see where you go, where you're going. And to do the survey is quite, you know. Do you, do you find engineers are charging for the survey typically, or they're doing that at risk because that's that's a number of hours. That's uh, quite a cost of sale to someone if they're doing that at risk. Yeah, that's interesting. So you've got most of the industry in the UK, sort of over 80% are sole traders. Never used to be. So if you go back to the 70s, most people involved in plumbing and heating, which was a simpler thing back then, uh, were employed. So they were employed by the regional gas boards, the local authorities, councils. So you would have yeah. this design team. So if, if you look at my city in Norwich, where I grew up, um, by the way, John, uh, John Sumner built the first ever river source heat pump in Norwich, 1948. So they've been going a long time. He used to heat up all the factory workers yeah. up until the 2000s. So you would have city engineering. So they were all the designers that worked and designed, uh, designed all the pipe sizing and, and all this. And then you would yeah. have your fitters go out. So before the word installers, you had your fitters would go out. My dad was a fitter. And they'd do all the pipe work in all the sort of homes and you'd have your foreman and your charge hands and your clerk of work. So there was a hierarchy, you have your apprenticeships. Now we're a sole trader. It's a, it's a self-employed industry. So you'll find that the sole trader that has to do all this, uh, some of them will charge for that survey. Some of them, let's say yep. they, they've teamed up and then let's say there's a like a, a five-person um, team. Um, they might offer that survey for free and then there's other models where they will if if they get the job that price is put on um so we're starting to see different models of that now of course you've then got lots of companies out there that have got the sales model so they'll employ sales people and they don't want to be derogatory to the window sales people but they'll employ someone that'll come around flash a big watch um says all the right things and people think oh yeah this is a great company now, the person that's coming around doing the survey actually hasn't got any clue about a heat system whatsoever. They've just got some ballpark prices. Yeah, they're a commission-driven commission yeah, driven salesperson, probably. Yeah, and it's, um, yeah. it's we're seeing a lot more of that happening. So a lot of the engineers out there are getting emails constantly from these big companies that are setting up, saying, come and earn this amount of money with us. You, <laughs> you know, all we've got to do is this, this, yeah. this. And this. Um, so, yeah, the sur- surveying is very interesting. So, obviously... Heat loss calculations we used to do years ago with MIRS, MIRS calculators. Like I say, um, the design teams back in the day would do that anyway for the fitters. We're starting to see a, a revival of people actually doing heat loss calculations. There are various ways you can do it. You can do it by hand or you can do it with um, software. However, I'm a big advocate of calculation is, has a massive room forever. And I use the analogy of a, a wedding dress. If you get all married... You know, the bride doesn't ring up the dressmaker and the dressmaker doesn't ask all these questions like, you know, what's your BMI? How tall are you? How much do you weigh? How much do you eat? Do you exercise? And then calculate the dress size. Yeah. They measure the person. And we can actually measure yeah. heat loss in a home. We can use something called uh, the, the heat and transfer coefficient. And there was a Bayes study called Smeter. 
So there used to be something called co-heating tests. There's now these HTC tests. You can even do it with your utility price data and with a few equations to get a ballpark figure. You can actually measure heat loss through fabric rather than calculate it. So U-values, when we use U-values, that's calculation. And especially with um, insulate, uh, cavity wall properties, no one knew how well that insulation went in. So when you put your U-value yeah. in your software, you're making a very sort of, um, you're just, it's just a judgment. It's, it's modeling. So we, we, I think yeah. you'll see the EPC certificates start to use, and I think, they, uh, I think they will start to use in the future, HTC, which is heat transfer coefficient. It's a proper measurement rather than a calculation. So what, and with, with sensors, with data, with uh, software models, that should be doable, shouldn't it? We should be much better that we should oh, be able yeah. to measure rather than estimate. And as you oh, say, yeah. when you estimate, yeah. there's so much margin for error, and that will presumably then affect how well the a heat pump might be sized, for example. With, without a doubt, without a doubt, yeah, it affects performance. And you know, we, we're all walking around with these mini supercomputers in our pockets. <laughs> you know, this technology they can do. It's yeah. not hard to measure heat loss nowadays, and it's not hard to monitor systems. I mean, we have been monitoring systems. The, the RHI had the sort of the MM, was it the monitoring and metering support package? Ofgem's got a lot of that yeah. data. Unfortunately, I mean, that data kind of should be open access so all us engineers can learn from it. You know, what systems are doing what? You know, why aren't they performing as good? What could we do here to tweak them? I mean, there is the Bayes yeah. Heat Pump Ready program about to start. And I think some of the companies and some of the consortiums will be doing that. They're well, one of the ones I'm in, but you know, we're trying to learn from data to help engineers sort of then um, you know, with the peer-to-peer learning sort of better their practices because that's useful data. Yeah. It's really useful data, that COP data. And then you've got to size the system. You've got to set up the controls right, as you say. You've got to get the flow temperatures right. You've got to get the radiators sized right in the right rooms for the, the water-wall sofas or the big TVs, as you say. So, yeah, I can really understand why there's that big range but why that is a very different type of job to just coming in for a few hours yeah. and swapping out a gas boiler yeah i think i think we might see some um, little niche industries like people becoming just specifically surveys who know know how heat moves in a home you know they know how heat uh, moisture hmm. and air moves within a home and they're very good at that whole survey thing um and, and that might become a little bit of an, and they have, have awareness of heating technology as well because one problem we have got is a lot of the domestic energy assessors and sort of the retrofit assessors, they don't always know heating technology very well. So they're getting a few things wrong. Yeah. Uh, in, my, in my humble opinion. Yeah. I suppose. How well, I mean, if you looked at all the installers engineers in the UK, Nathan, how many, what proportion would you say are really doing heat loss calculations as they should be sizing, uh, heating systems, putting the controls on, checking the radiators, you know, treating the whole heating system rather than just the, the heating appliance. Is it is it 10%? Is it 30%? Is it 50% who are able to do a really good job of that? Cool. Well, that's a good question. Uh, it's probably more people than what I would actually put a figure on it. I mean, the, the funny thing is you kind of don't have to size um so what the problem we've got in this country is that the combination boiler became very popular. So for all your listeners that don't know, all yeah. boilers are now condensing technology, so they can work with low flow temps. They're supposed to. Uh, but, uh, but combination boilers, which are the most popular boiler, they do a combination of two things. They, they provide the heating you know, around your radiators or around the floor, 
and they also provide instantaneous hot water. So you turn your tap on, the mains water goes into the combi boiler, comes out hot. So we've done away with cylinders. Now, these were sized to be able to heat water instantaneously. So you're going to get 24 kilowatts, yeah. 30 kilowatts. And you've got manufacturers. So when you're having sit. a shower. Yeah. So, now, so when you're having a shower, you've got loads of hot water coming through. Yeah. Well, this is the thing. I mean, you'll get the manufacturers PR and marketing say, you know, buy a bigger boiler, you'll get more water coming through quicker. Well, you don't. Your water is de dependent on what's the flow rate of your main coming into your property. You know, if you've got 10 litres per minute coming in your main, you can only have 10 litres mm. or, or, or less coming out of your boiler heated up. So all these claims that, you know, the bigger the boiler, the, the quicker the water will come out. Well, it's all dependent on what your flow rate of your mains and pressure of your mains is. So, but we size, we've been sizing boilers for that. So you kind of have to have a, a certain size to be able to do that water instantaneously. The problem we've got is most properties in the UK, despite we say we've got leaky properties, most properties in the UK only need around six to eight kilowatts of um, power, which is, uh, let's say it's eight kilowatts, it's 8,000 joules per second at design temperature, which is usually around minus three. And that means when it's, uh, like I say, well, I think I said earlier, you know, when it's like 10 degrees outside, you only need 3.6 kilowatts. Well, most boilers can't modulate yeah. down that low. There's only a few that are actually able to modulate down low enough to be able to, um, so, so that, you know, the, 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 the most, uh, the biggest gas boiler seller in, in, in the UK is ideal. So a lot of them go into new builds. New builds are around about four, kil four kilowatt demand at minus three. Mm. And the boilers going in can only range right down to seven kilowatts. So these are these these boilers actually aren't condensing properly. So even if yep. an engineer was to go in and size the system correctly, they're, they're, they haven't got the boilers out there in the market, despite there's been a lot of models and makes out there. They haven't got the right, correct boilers that can modulate down low enough, um, which, is, so, <laughs> which is quite bizarre. So it's really going to be a we're, – we're going to have to upskill, train, use all your learning techniques you talked about at the very beginning. Um, the majority of installers are going to have to really reskill in much of their approaches to, uh, to installing heating systems. Is that fair yeah, to say that, or is that, that too harsh? Yeah. But no, it is that some of them, and some of them already are. It's they, some of them already are, and they're doing great stuff. It's just the market isn't ready for them. So, so like I said, you know, if an engineer's really yeah. learnt this stuff about flow temps and modulation, et cetera, et cetera, the customer base isn't out there ready for them, unless unless they've got customers that are now uh, having heat pumps. Because that's quite a scary move for for the sole trader to sort of go into heat pumps if there isn't um, a customer base for them, because uh, because uh, we're in the transition. Yeah, yeah, it's a big jump. But no, people are people and, and like any learning, you know, there's a quote, um, you know, learning is like breathing. You can't do it for someone. They have to do it themselves. Uh, you know, if you want to become the best footballer in the world, you have to practice every day. It's no good just going on a boot camp every summer holiday. You know, you've got to practice every day and you'll find the best engineers practice every day. Not hands on practice. They're practicing with each other, like chatting about stuff. You know, what would you do here? Yeah. What would you do there? They're very passionate yeah. and conscientious about their industry because it's 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 technical. Like my cousin said, you know. Heating isn't rocket science. It's far more complex. You know, rockets, you'd have thermodynamic <laughs> systems on them to keep them cool. It's a comp You can go right yeah. down the rabbit hole with, uh, with hydronics and, and thermodynamics. Yeah. Right. It's a complex industry. Um, I mean, analogies are good for learning. I like to use so, analogies uh, to help people learn and get excited about it. It's about activating people to be passionate hmm. about learning. Um, unfortunately, yeah. my industry thinks so you've got to get the learning on courses. You know, because anyone can go on the course. You've got to get the learning. 
you've got to get the learning right. You've got to get the demand there. So as you say, these sole traders can see the demand. They know they'll get a return on investment in that learning and then we're yeah. in that direction. But if the market moves too quickly, the market's going to be frustrated because the yeah. engineers will be following it. Um, we better move on, Nathan, to the last part of the podcast, which is where we get out the Talking New Energy crystal ball. And I'm going to set the dial this week five to five years time, 2027. And quite a wide question for you. Uh, but I'd like to hear your views on how much progress you think uh, Britain will have made to decarbonizing heat in the next five years. So for listeners that don't know, today, vast majority of heating systems installed are gas boilers, heat pumps, very small, tiny, but growing. Where will we be in, in five years time, do you think, Nathan? How optimistic or pessimistic are you? I'm optimistic, John. I think it's, uh, I am optimistic. You've got people like Octopus Energy that have obviously um, got big voice, so they're doing heat pumps, and lots of, lots of awareness around heat pumps now, so that's a good thing. Uh, you have got engineers now starting to realise that the, the, their, their industry is transitioning. So, that, you know, they're starting to sort of think about things. I am I am quite optimistic. Manufacturers are going to have to sort of buck their ideas up a bit and change their marketing tactics and, and help help engineers learn. You know, provide some really useful resources to help people do the stuff they need to do. It's not always about courses. Sometimes it's resources. They provide something that's going to help the people do what they need to do. Um I am quite optimistic. I mean, I don't know if we're going to be um, what the 10 point, 10, what 10 point plan set out and, and, and have reached 6, 600,000 heat pumps a, a year. I mean, it's worth pointing out, though, when we talk about heat pumps, heat pumps exist everywhere. They're around us every day. So, you know, you go in the garage, that cost a coffee machine. That's a heat pump. Hmm. The, the, a vending machine is a heat pump. A slush puppy machine is a heat pump. Most of the offices that we work in, People look up and think it's air conditioning. It's not. It's comfort cooling, comfort heating. It's all vapor compression. All a heat pump is, all a heat mm. pump is, is moving heat from an evaporator to a condenser via compressor. And they exist everywhere on the planet. And what's the biggest challenge from a installer engineer perspective? Or what would you like to see happen to for your optimism to be realized? I think... They need more support. I think there needs to be behavioural change um, that people value a, a heating engineer a little bit more than they, they do. That's a tough one. That is a tough one because there is a small cohort out there exploiting customers, charging the earth, not doing a great job. You know, uh, There's a lot of conscious incompetence out there. So they consciously know they're not good enough. Yeah. There's a lot of unconscious incompetence out there. So there's people out there doing stuff that they don't know is wrong. But, you know, you can work with them. You can say, look, you know, you need to do it a little bit like this. And they think, oh, yeah, I didn't know that. And away they go. So there's all different types of competence. Um, they need they need some support from, from manufacturers. So manufacturers and industry stop, need to stop all this rubbish marketing that they've, they've been historically doing for about 30 years because a lot of it's incorrect. It's just rubbish, and they're just trying to sort of sell stuff and help engineers become um, valued. And we need we need... And for that to happen, we need really, really good consumer information because the, the, the heterogeneous information out there for consumers, it, 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 you know, a lot of it's wrong, a lot of disinformation. Yeah. They need real good quality information because once they've got good information, they will then have a better understanding how to pick good engineers. It drives up best practice because if you've got a consumer saying an engineer will, you know, what is a what? And an engineer doesn't know it's a joke per second. They can actually then think, well, you can't should do really. 
I mean, they don't have to at the moment, but, they, but you know, there's certain things that engineers are going to have to start to grasp. And I think consumers can yeah. help drive that, but they need the good information first. It sounds like it's going to need a bit of everyone, Nathan. It's going to need um, manufacturers yeah. to support the installers, engineers they work with. And some of them, I think, are are doing a reasonable job there, moving in that direction. It's going to need um, householders, consumers to, uh, to probably put more value, attach more value to their heating system and advice they get on their heating system. It will need government to help facilitate this. It will need uh, service companies, energy retailers, as you mentioned, to uh, to help create the market with interesting propositions. So, uh but the one my takeaway from this discussion is unless we get the engineers part of it right, we can get every other part right. Yeah. But unless we get the engineers part right, then the whole thing, you know. I it, mean, you're you're very work. you're very close to government, John. I mean, do, do you feel um, that they that they think that we the engineers is a big part of it? You know, helping support the engineers. I mean, I know they're all talking about upskilling and they're all talking about these courses, but, you know, we've had courses for years and years and years, and yet we've got kind of a low skill with all this technology. So you have to ask your question, well, is that the be-all and end-all of it, courses? You know, there's there's more to it than that. Are governments yeah. sort of interested in I this? I think the biggest thing I, th- I think is missing is understanding the business perspective of that sole trader you talk about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, if... I think most engineers are quite entrepreneurial yeah. and I think if they see an opportunity, they will learn, they'll go on courses, they'll listen to your podcast, they'll talk with other other engineers and I think they're, they're capable, um, but they need to see the business opportunity because they've got, they've got families, they've got mortgages, they've got bills to pay mm. and unless they see the opportunity, they're not going to invest their time in it, quite rightly. One of the saddest things I see, obviously, I've been involved in teaching a lot of apprentices, and everyone thinks apprenticeships is this you know, the, the panacea. The trouble is, apprenticeships have actually been perpetuating the problem because a lot of apprentices, the main facilitator of learning for an apprentice isn't the college, it's the people they're actually out there working with. And if they've got low skill, mm. the apprentice ends yeah. up having low skill. It perpetuates the problem. Now, you've got some really, really good companies and engineers out there. If they were to get funding, that full fund to take on an apprentice, so we could, so they could learn really, really good uh, you know, stuff, that would be a, a great bonus. But at the moment, the funding goes direct to colleges. Colleges only have them for one day a week, and yet they get all of funding eventually. Yeah. And it's so skewed. The whole training thing is so skewed towards this whole sort of mishmash of um, bu- bureaucratic education system. Whereas if you've got a good engineer. Give them some money, give them some ports, give them some empathy training, put some apprentices with them, and they will become great. And that's not happening. Well, Nathan, this I think there's a lot more we could talk about. This <laughs> uh, discussion today, it, it re-emphasizes my view that decarbonizing power is hard, but I can see how that's going to be done and is being done. Decarbonizing transport, the same. Decarbonizing heat is an order of magnitude harder i think because there are so many different parts to the equation and we're dealing with so many different types of people and organizations um so anyway it sounds like progress well i know progress is being made it's great to hear your views from um working with engineers and installers and training them so thanks very much for your time nathan really appreciate it well you're welcome thank you for inviting me and 
Thanks everyone for listening. We hope you've learned more about the world of heating engineers installers and maybe prompted you to go and look at your own heating system and look at whether you've got sludge in the radiators, what controls you've got and what flow temperatures you've got in your house. So on that note, wishing you luck to go and uh, get stuck into your own heating system and hopefully decarbonize it and look forward to welcoming you back soon. Thanks very much and goodbye. If you're as passionate about the energy transition as we are, then please keep in touch. You can follow us and me on Twitter, LinkedIn, or subscribe to the podcasts on your chosen podcast platform. If you like the podcast and like sharing, then please do rate us. And to listen to archived episodes, to read transcripts, and to see the latest Delta EE insights, then please visit www.delta-ee.com. Thank you.